to study our Bibles together, let's uh, pray once again that uh, the Lord would uh, encourage us and strengthen us in our service of him as we, uh, as we study his word. Let's pray, shall we? Our loving Heavenly Father, we've uh, prayed for others who greatly need steadfastness. We prayed for the children, Lord, who, who uh, need to learn more of you and to grow up to be strong and courageous in their love of you so that they can serve you in this world. We feel that need too, Lord. We sense that uh, our faiths are weaker than they should be. Our service of you is less wholehearted. Lord, as we study your word, come alongside as we pray by your Holy Spirit. Give us life, miraculous life, that comes from you. Chasten us if we need it, Lord. And Lord, make us more like the people you want us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're studying James chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. James says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I wonder what you think mankind's most powerful gift is. Some people this week might um, say it's the, uh, the gift of having a right foot like Michael Owen or a head like Alan Shearer, but I'm not sure that's uh, terribly sustainable. Perhaps it's our ability to manipulate things. You know, a lot of anthropologists uh, and uh, zoologists say that one of the key things that distinguishes man from animals is our ability to use tools. Or is it perhaps our inventive mind? 
If you think about it, all the great strides in civilization have been associated with real imaginative inventions. Smelting furnaces, for instance, or the wheel, or the horse-drawn plow, or the steam engine, or the internal combustion engine, or the computer. They've all been responsible for great uh, revolutions in the world. I'm convinced, though, there is one gift more than any other that is mankind's most powerful gift. It's the gift of language. See, without language, there would be no civilization. Without language, all the best thoughts of a person would die with them. The next generation would just have to start from scratch all over again. Without language, there would be no communication between individuals, no community, no real relationships. Without language, the world would be an utterly desolate place. In fact, the Bible says that language is more fundamental to the universe than material things. Before a single molecule of the universe existed, God existed and God created all the material things we see by speaking. Genesis chapter 1 repeats again and again the, the, the three-word phrase, and God said. More than, the, more than that, actually, the universe only holds together today because of Christ's world. Words, Christ's word. Hebrews 1, chapter 3 says, Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. Or the Bible says that throughout history, God only had to speak to save his enemies, to, to his people, to destroy his enemies. Revelation 19, there's a very powerful picture of Christ's victory over the powers of evil. And he is victorious, says the book of Revelation, as the Word of God. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, it says. His name is the Word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. By his Word, says the Bible, by language, God creates, God sustains, God controls, and God will finally vanquish all evil in the universe. And then God does something even more amazing. God gives that power of language to ordinary sinful human beings. In our hands, though, Language, then, becomes a most potent force for good and an incredibly dangerous force for evil. Great power for good there is. God gives us the opportunity to understand him and then to communicate his word to other peoples. You know, when, when the Apostle Paul says uh, in Colossians that he's been given the responsibility to present to you the word of God in its fullness, he is saying God has delegated to him, an ordinary human being, that responsibility of wielding this most powerful power in the whole universe. 
It was the Word of God which created the universe, the Word of God which sustains the universe, the Word of God which finally will defeat all evil. And he says that as I understand God and speak what God says, I have been given the Word of God to speak. Enormously powerful. But mankind's language as well is an enormously powerful force of evil as well. Just a couple of verses from the book of Proverbs to make that point. Proverbs 11 verse 9. With his mouth the godless destroys his neighbour. Or Proverbs 12 verse 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword. James is very conscious as he wrote the first half of uh, chapter 3, of those two aspects of human speech. On the one hand, Christians, especially those who teach the faith, have the unique opportunity of speaking the gospel, which is the power of God. And on the other hand, he's actually going to major in these verses we've just read, on the fact that all the forces of evil in the universe can be concentrated in words that human beings speak. We're going to look at what James has to say then under two headings. First of all, he is going to give us a brief word to teachers in the church. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 to 12, he gives us a longer word to all Christians. First one then, a brief word to teachers. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brother, be, brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, this is very important to heed, isn't it? You know, we have a tradition in, in this church of having a large number of people involved in, uh, in, in teaching, certainly in the past. And I, I applaud that. But there is a real danger in it too. A danger that we can have a rather casual attitude to teaching the Word of God. James says that we who teach will be judged more severely. Why is that? Well, first of all, I think James thinks, uh, says we're judged more severely on the principle of to him who much, to whom much is given, much is expected. If God gives someone a special gift of understanding his word, and if that person undertakes to teach his word, then God expects that person to live a more godly life in response. The more you know, the more, you will, the more strictly you will be judged. That's part of God's justice. But secondly, I think this strictness of judgment that James warns us about is because of the fact that Bible teachers especially have a unique influence on people's spiritual lives. Our growth in Christ rests in a large part on our understanding of the Scriptures. The lifestyle we choose, the habits we develop, our joys and our sorrows, are actually all profoundly shaped by our understanding of the Scriptures. Most importantly of all, we are converted through hearing the word of truth. When someone stands up to teach the Bible then, they are taking on themselves a very serious responsibility 
You know, churches are destroyed by bad teaching. Individuals go to hell because the teacher they listened to never told them the truth. We've just had a scandal, haven't we, concerning uh, two surgeons in Bristol who kept on doing operations on little children when the evidence was mounting that they were not competent to do the job. Many children lost their lives as a result of that. We don't know how many. Finally, a disciplinary hearing has struck one of them off, has suspended the other. James says to us, there will be hearings like that on the last day. For pastors, for preachers, for house group leaders. Fills me with fear, you know, to think that God might say to me, what about him? What about her? Through your laziness, your casual attitude, your downright rebellion, they failed to hear the word of life. And someone presumes to wield the word of God, then they're handling something more sharp, more dangerous than any instrument found in an operating theatre. Before all the house group leaders resign and I go off to practice veterinary medicine again, we should perhaps look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, James reassures us. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. James is quite clear that perfection is not something that we are ultimately able to attain, this side of heaven. Everyone, he says, stumbles in many ways. But, he says, don't be perfunctory in your understanding of the Word of God, especially if you teach it. Don't be casual. Some of us here do, do teach the Bible in, in this church and elsewhere. And I want to ask you, do you take it that seriously? If you're a house group leader, you don't actually have an enormously high degree of responsibility for teaching. Your primary role is to facilitate discussion, to foster a caring environment, to encourage others to read the scriptures for themselves. But we don't appoint house group leaders in this church uh, as teachers as, as such. But don't underestimate your role. You are caring for eternal beings in that house group. Their growth or their lack of it in that group will affect them eternally. And if you are leading that group, in this, insofar as you are responsible for their growth or lack of it, you too will face God and have to answer his questions. If you don't uh, teach the Bible, especially if you, uh, if you uh, don't teach the Bible in the way that people like me are called to, and to a certain extent breathe a sigh of relief, but I would appeal to you Pray for those of us who do. It is a heavy load to bear, and we are none of us perfect. 
passages like this remind me all the more clearly of my responsibility. Pray for us. Pray for teachers in this country and elsewhere. We will be judged more strictly. Well, that's James's brief word to teachers. Now, we must take this longer look at his longer word to all Christians. First of all, in verses 3 to the first half of verse 5, he gives us two illustrations of the power of the tongue. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever a pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. You know, riding a horse is enormously exhilarating. Horses are built for speed. You know, sitting astride a horse in, in full gallop is, uh, in my book, one of those great experiences. You can feel all their muscles working in unison. You can, you can sense their excitement. You're travelling over the ground faster than anyone could ever run. And all that controls those, those hundreds of pounds of flesh hurtling along is a little bit in their mouth. Similarly, sailing a boat, I've done a little bit of that, is another great experience. You know, you, you raise the sail and that, that invisible force, which is the wind, pulls along tons of wood or fiberglass or steel, sometimes at breakneck pace. You know, in a high wind, there's sometimes, there's sometimes only the slightest difference between cutting through the waves at an enormous lick and capsizing. And the difference lies in one little piece of that boat, the rudder. What James is trying to get at. Such is the power of the tongue, he says. Like a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on the boat, our tongues, he says, control our destiny. If we can control our tongues, we can control ourselves. And a controlled tongue, he says, can achieve great things. But a person with an uncontrolled tongue is as dangerous as a riderless racehorse or a boat that has lost its cocks. It's only a matter of time before disaster strikes. You know, on the positive side of that, the power of words and language that James is talking about here is very exciting. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the... uh, Russian dissident writer, when he was um, making his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, said this. He said, We writers have no rockets to blast off. We do not even trundle the most insignificant auxiliary vehicle. We are indeed altogether despised by those who respect only material power. But writers can do something more. They can vanquish the lie. One word of truth outweighs the whole world. And on such a fantastic breach of the law of conservation of mass and energy are based my own activities and my appeal to the writers of the world. To speak the truth boldly and fearlessly, 
seems actually so insignificant, and yet words are more mighty than armies. That little organ we have in our mouth, our tongue, if we use it to glorify God, is the most powerful thing we could ever have. Were we to be in a Sherman tank, or to be able to press the button on a nuclear weapon, we would not have more power than if we, by the Holy Spirit, have control of tongues that speak the truth. James is actually more concerned about the negative side of this uh, principle of the power of the tongue. He's talked to us about the power of the tongue, but now he goes on to warn us in the second half of verse 5 to verse 8 of the untamability of the tongue. Once again, uh, James uses some powerful images. Let's read it. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James says, first of all, a word out of place is like a cigarette thoughtlessly tossed out of the car. The fire which that little cigarette ignites might destroy thousands and thousands of acres of land. It might even kill. Such is the power of the tongue, says James. It's a world of evil, corrupting the whole body, person. It sets a life on fire with flames which can come straight from the pit of hell. And from time to time, you know, we have, we have news, don't we, of, of massive forest fires around the world. Imagine them tracing back one of those fires to a match that was dropped by you. Imagine them taking, taking us to, uh, to survey the vast area, perhaps sometimes hundreds of square miles of land, absolutely destroyed, with houses. Imagine them taking us to the mortuary, showing us charred bodies, saying that was started by you. James says, but a word out of place can do that damage. Set on fire, fire from the pit of hell, he says. And he says, he warns us, our tongues are ultimately not tameable. Verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, when I was a child, I, I loved reading all the books of Gerald Durrell. He describes there how all sorts of animals that he uh, took to his zoo were a real challenge to tame and to breed in captivity. But you saw him again and again through care and careful observation 
being able to breed these animals. James is not surprised about that. All sorts of animals can have that, uh, uh, can be tamed, can be trolled, controlled, kept in captivity, he says. But not even the genius of Gerald Durrell will tame the tongue. It's just untamable. Therefore, something to be feared. Then he goes on to talk about the glory and the shame of the tongue in verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord, with it we curse men who, who, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. He's bringing out a great irony here. Read the descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation and you'll find they're, they're dominated by descriptions of praise from the tongues of saints and angels. One of the most uh, glorious things we can do, he says, is speak of God's goodness and power and majesty and authority and worth and love. He says so that lasts for eternity, in fact. Heaven is going to be filled with the sound of human tongues praising God. But those same organs, he says, that have such a, such a, a sublime role for all eternity, turn around and curse people. Curse people who actually are intimately connected with God because whether they are Christians or not, they are made in God's image. If we don't curse them, we, we gossip about them, don't we? In described gossip as the art of confessing other people's sins. We love to do it, don't we? We make uh, uh, coarse jokes about them, or we ascribe false motives to them, or we subtly despise them. Now, Jim Packer, in his uh, book, A Passion for Holiness, says this. He says, I once read about a lady who was a popular speaker on holiness platforms and a fluent writer on holiness themes over a hundred years ago. Her, son, her son-in-law wrote that many thought her a saint and a sage, but he himself came gradually to think of her as one of the wickedest people I have ever known. Why? His list of reasons began thus. Her treatment of her husband, whom she despised, was humiliating to the highest degree. She never spoke to him or of him except in a tone which made her contempt obvious. It cannot be denied that he was a silly old man, but he did not deserve what she gave him. No one capable of mercy could have given it. James says, this should not be. But actually, he goes further than that. He says there's not only a should not about it. He says there's a sense in which a person who praises God one moment and curses man the next is living an impossible life. One of those activities will, is a lie. Verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, a fig tree bears olives, 
Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Jesus himself said, didn't he, that uh, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. He's warning us that a, a totally inconsistent life may be symptomatic, you see, not just of imperfection, but of a lack of spiritual life in our heart at all. Our spiritual life is not measured by the way we sing on Sunday. It's measured by the way we speak on Monday. Once again, you see, James, as we've become used to, is using very powerful pictures. There's real tenderness in his heart. He calls his readers, my brothers, twice in these verses. Because he knows the seriousness of what he's saying. He doesn't want to set himself apart from them. He wants to tell them this most sincerely and most tenderly. His concern for them that makes him speak so boldly. Well, how should we respond then? Remember, he's used these pictures to show us the power of speech. He's used these pictures to show us the untamability of our tongues. Finally, he's, uh, he's uh, spoken about the glory and shame of our tongues. How should we respond? Well, let me suggest two responses that are absolutely vital to us. First is we need to seek supernatural control of our tongues. Now, James has already said that our tongues are untamable, hasn't he? I, I know that from my own experience. If you, if you know me, you will uh, be aware that my tongue doesn't always speak as it should. We need God's help, every one of us. We need God's supernatural help. Our tongues, you see, can only be controlled aright as our hearts are right. Very easy for people who, uh, who sense uh, that, that sometimes they speak wrong, just to try to keep tighter and tighter control on their tongue itself. Let me suggest there's something more profound we can do. When we speak in a way that we regret, ask the Lord what there was in our hearts which made us do that. And then ask the Lord to change our hearts. Because that is a transformation which will last. And will mean, in fact, we do not need to bridle our tongues because out of the overflow of a heart that is renewed will come good speech. We need to ask the Lord for supernatural control of our tongues, which in fact is supernatural control of our hearts. And then secondly, we need to ask the Lord for supernatural forgiveness. There are few things, you know, that the devil hates more than seeing Christians forgive one another. Because then that spark 
does not become a fire. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard words coming out of my mouth that I just wish I could take back. Once they are out, once they've left our lips, there is nothing we can do except to seek forgiveness. That takes a miracle. It takes a miracle on the part of the person who's seeking forgiveness because we have to humble ourselves. We have to accept that we did wrong. We have to go and say to the other person, please forgive me. But it takes a a miracle on the part of the person who is forgiving as well because it is hard to forget, isn't it? Words stay with you. I wonder how many marriages have been destroyed by harsh words that just cannot be forgotten. How many churches have been split apart by a refusal to apologise combined with a refusal to forget. How many individuals have been, uh, uh, become bitter and twisted and spiritual dwarfs because they've collected the injustices perpetrated against them like so many trophies on the mantelpiece that they polish up every so often. Now there are two fires that can take a grip in any church. But one is the fire that James has described here. It's a forest fire of hate and intemperate words and nurtured grievances, and the devil loves it because that fire comes straight from hell. The other fire is from heaven. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit, setting people alight with the glory of God, with the power of transformed hearts, with the beauty of holiness, with forgiveness and compassion and love. And that is the fire that we need to seek from the Lord. We need to ask the Lord to so indwell us that we become like Jesus, who when he was in his deepest pain and agony, was able nevertheless to pray, Father, Forgive them. You know, speech, language, is mankind's most powerful gift. It's the most extraordinarily exciting gift. Because to speak is to be in the image of God. Speech, the word of God from our lips, can create life in people but is the most extraordinarily dangerous gift as well. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, there is not a one of us here who does not need to ask your forgiveness, who does not need to uh, realise afresh the danger and the power of our tongues. Please, Lord, change our hearts and fill our mouths with words from you. Set us on fire, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen.